Right. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Don't worry, we're not starting over. This is just a place to go. Uh, on December 21st, 2012, we began this journey through the book of Luke. So it's been about three years, months shy of that. We took some breaks, of course, but as best I can tell, uh, we've had 111 sermons as of today on the book of Luke. What a great number, 111. Isn't that uh, Bilbo's birthday that he celebrates in Lord of the Rings, the 111th birthday? So it's, the, it's a good number, 111. So this is our 111th sermon. Um, I thought about, you know, about 35 minutes. Sometimes I go a little longer than that. Uh, per sermon, that means about 64 hours that we've studied this, about two and a half days of your life you spent studying the book of Luke. Well, maybe not everyone. Uh, I was probably the only one that was here for every sermon. Um, that's okay. Uh, but a lot has happened in three years. Think about all that's happened in three years and 111 sermons. We've seen people come and go in three years. Some of you uh, were here for the first sermon, and some of you, maybe this is the first sermon in, the, in, in, in Luke that you've heard. Um, but a lot has happened. Our church has seen uh, new challenges since then. When we began the study, we had only been in this space for about eight months. And so we were just getting our feet wet and reaching out into the neighborhood. And we're still learning much in that. But I think we've learned some big lessons as a, ch- as a church and that Luke was timely for us in many ways. Um, I think... Luke's heart for the poor and for the outcasts of society has served us well as we've engaged with our community. Um, and God is teaching us what that looks like, to have the heart of Jesus as, as he shows us. Um, sort of the, the um, theme that has been on my lips a lot is the, to, um, to present the gospel, to preach the gospel, to tell the gospel in word and in deed. And that's what Jesus does throughout the book. He shows compassion and kindness to others, but he also preaches the word very clearly. And that's uh, what we're trying to model as, as a church. So those are things we're learning as we've learned as a church. I hope that there's highlights in the book of Luke, things that you remember, uh, passages that God really used in your life. Um, I encourage you to think about that. But having gone through the entire book, I think it makes sense for us to, to pause and try to think about the message of, of Luke as a whole. Um, I was trying to think of what that's, it'd be like going on a, uh, a long road trip, maybe like a three-year road trip, okay? This is the ultimate road trip. And, and you travel all over the place and see so many different things. Maybe a road trip wouldn't be it. Maybe, maybe it's a, a world tour or something, you know, and you're going all over the place. And you can think about all these different places that you've gone. It's good to pause at the end maybe and, and get sort of a bird's eye view, the, the Goodyear blimp view, and see that path that we've gone on and try to understand where has God taken us, what has he been teaching us, and, and sort of what's the whole point of the book of Luke. So this will be less like a three-year road trip and more like a roller coaster this morning as we try to zip through the entire book. Um, so our text is the whole book of Luke, uh, but we're going to land in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, because I think this is Luke's clearest statement about his purpose, and we'll kind of launch from here. So this will be a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, I encourage you to, there'll be some passages I read the whole thing, and you can turn to those. Others I'll probably just refer to, um, but hopefully we'll get a big picture for the book of Luke. But Luke 1, and let's read, let me read verses 1 through 4. He begins his gospel, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, 
and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. These verses have have sort of guided our study of Luke about eyewitnesses, people who had seen what Christ had done, at this orderly account that he is writing with a purpose, and, and that, that main purpose there of giving us certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants us to be certain about something. And I think if we had to break that down and say, most simply, what does Luke want us to be certain about? He wants us to be certain about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? What about all these things that we hear about Jesus? What is the, the thing that is to be, we want to be clear on? And the certainty then of who Jesus is drives us to action. So let me say that in one big idea. Luke's, Luke makes us certain of who Jesus is and then calls us to follow him. That may seem very simple. Luke makes us certain of who Jesus is and calls us to follow him. And maybe that's the point of the whole New Testament, but yet Luke is very specific in what he's going to communicate. And so I want us to think first about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? And we'll think about it in two big ideas. He's the the Savior of the world, and he is Lord of all. Savior and Lord. That's the big thing that Luke has throughout the whole book. He's the Savior of the world, and he's the Lord of all. So first, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus has come into the world to bring salvation, to call people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For the Jewish people... That would mean, at the very least, that he is the promised Messiah. And I think that is a big thing that Luke makes very clear. So Jesus is the Savior of the world, and and underneath that he's saying he's the promised Messiah. So from right from the beginning, he makes this theme of Jesus being the promised Messiah very clear. Chapters 1 and 2, he sets forth all these reliable witnesses, people that would, would prove that he was the Messiah. So Zechariah is the first guy we meet, this respected priest and his wife, Elizabeth, They're given this miraculous child. Remember, she's old, past the age of of bearing children, and miraculously she she becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And Zechariah's first response is disbelief. And yet when John is born, God looses his tongue, and the first thing that he says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 68, this is what Zechariah sings and prophesies. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. All our days. Those key words, David, Abraham, he's the fulfillment of all of these promises. Mary is visited by that same angel, and she's told that she is going to conceive a child by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was old and past the age of bearing children. Mary was young and was a virgin, and they have these miraculous births. And she hears this and magnifies God for the coming of the Messiah. At the end of her song, in chapter 1, verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This, for, this force that Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for, the promised Messiah. The angels come and tell the shepherds that a Savior has been born who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. Then Jesus is taken to the temple eight days later as a child. And Simeon, who was promised, you will see the Messiah before you die. In chapter 2, verse 29 says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And then Anna, in that same scene, the prophetess comes up to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and she begins to give thanks to God and to speak to anyone who would listen about the redemption of Jerusalem that was coming. And then chapter 2 closes with this scene of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, speaking to the teachers of the law who are listening to him and learning from him. And he speaks of his father, God. He needs to be about his father's business. So these first two chapters paint this picture that Jesus is the coming Messiah and he has come. And then John, my favorite New Testament character, bursts onto the scene and he and he comes as the voice crying in the wilderness in chapter 3, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. People think he's the Messiah, you remember, and he responds in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John gives this amazing picture of who is coming after him, who he is, he is telling is coming. Luke gives a whole genealogy of Jesus and he traces his line, his, his lineage through King David, linking him to the promise of a coming king. He, he, he gives his, his genealogy through Abraham and links him to the promise of a great nation. He gives his lineage through Adam, linking him to the promise of a seed who would crush the serpent's head. All these things are purposeful, and all these witnesses are saying he is the promised Messiah. But it's not just the witnesses, Jesus himself. The first thing that he says in chapter 4, he comes and he says when he stands up on that Sabbath day, in his hometown of Nazareth, he takes up the scroll of Isaiah in verse 18 and, say, and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as everyone's looking at him, he says, Today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus proclaims himself as the Messiah. Throughout his ministry, he, he continues to do that. He claims authority to forgive sins. When John the Baptist sends messengers and asks from prison if Jesus truly is the Messiah, he says, you tell John this, you have seen what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But his saving work is not what everyone expected, is it? Because in chapter 9, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Not so that he could go and, and take the throne as a conquering king, but rather that he would take up the cross and die as the suffering servant. And as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, he goes, and when he arrives, he takes up this messianic banner again, doesn't he? Remember how he enters in in chapter 19? 
He purposely takes that donkey, sits on the donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and goes into Jerusalem through the east gate as people are crying out, Hosanna. He comes in as the king. He comes in as a priest. He goes into the temple and cleans it out. He comes in as a prophet. He speaks in the temple with authority. He says that he is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that has been rejected by men in chapter 20, verse 17. He says he's the fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 110 in chapter 20, verses 42 to 43. In his trial, what do they find him guilty of? Saying he's the Son of God, which he is. And then in his death, he tears the curtain of the temple in half, opens up the way to God by tearing his body. In his resurrection, he proclaims afterwards when he comes twice, he says, all the scriptures from Moses, all the prophets and the Psalms are talking about me. And then in his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant. Luke is clear. Jesus is the Messiah. But his description goes beyond simply him being the promised Savior King of the Jewish people. He is Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so Luke shows not simply that he is the promised Messiah, but also that he is the Redeemer of all people. He's the Redeemer of everyone. And as we think about this idea that he's the Redeemer of all people, Luke's emphasis is on both that Jesus' mission is to all nations but also that Jesus' mission is to the outcasts of society. And these themes intertwine, that, that Jesus has come not just for one nation, but for all peoples, and also that he's come for all peoples in the sense that there is no division between race or ethnicity, between socioeconomic status, between anything else, between men and women, that he's come for all people. So Mary, she's talking about, in that song in, in, in Luke chapter 1, she sings about him being the fulfillment of this messianic promise. But she also says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus has come for the hungry. Jesus has come for those who are humble. The angels, when they show up, they say, this is good news of great joy for who? All people. It's for everyone. Simeon calls Jesus, when he sings that song, yes, he is the glory to your people Israel, but he also is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. John the Baptist calls people to repent. And he says to everyone, if you're trusting in your physical lineage, you're linked to Abraham. Let me tell you this. God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. Don't trust in that. And the people who come to John, who are they? Tax collectors, soldiers, outcasts of society. Remember when Jesus is rejected in his hometown, when he, when he reads that part from Isaiah that emphasizes the, the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed, that he says, as they reject him, he says, listen, when Elijah was talking to people, when he was performing miracles, he went to a widow of Zarephath, and he went to a man named Naaman, both non-Israelites, because he was rejected by the people of Israel. In chapter 11, he says that the pagan men of Nineveh and that the non-Jewish queen of Sheba will stand up as witnesses against the children of Israel because they responded at much less revelation and his own people would not respond when he, the Messiah, was standing in front of them. He was born in poverty. 
He's born in the midst of scandal. And the first people to hear about him are shepherds. Dirty, stinking shepherds that nobody liked. He's the lowest of the low in culture. And as Jesus steps in and again in, in chapter 4, he's here for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. He touches lepers. No one would touch lepers. No one would even go near lepers. And he touches them and heals them. He calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And then goes and eats with a bunch of tax collectors, which no self-respecting person in society would have done. But he knows his mission. And as everyone mocks him for going to sit with tax collectors, this is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus purposely surrounds himself with the sick and the suffering, with fishermen and political zealots and shepherds. And in his Sermon on the Plain, he pronounces blessing on who? The poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the excluded. And he proclaims woes on the rich, the stuffed, the laughing, and those that are well spoken of. When he sits with the, to eat with a Pharisee, he doesn't commend the Pharisee. He commends the sinful woman who comes and washes his feet with her tears because the prideful Pharisee had refused to do it. He, he, and that's not the only woman that he exalts. He exalts this group of women who support his ministry in chapter 8. These women of means who come and support his ministry. And then later on, as we saw in chapter 23 and 24, become key eyewitnesses to the resurrection. He blesses children. He holds them up as examples of faith, even though society pushes children away. He commends a shameful prodigal in his story. And then he shames a prideful religious brother. He tells a parable where the humble prayer of a tax collector puts a Pharisee to shame. He made time for a vertically challenged tax collector, Zacchaeus, who was willing to truly repent. And at the end, after he dies, who is it that stands up and says, this man was innocent? It's a centurion. Luke shows us that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the promised Messiah, and he is the Redeemer of all people, Gentiles, outcasts alike. And Luke also emphasizes not that Jesus is just the Savior of the world, but Jesus is the Lord of all. That's our second bait. Who is Jesus? The Savior of the world. He's the Lord of all. Let's think about this theme. Let me take another roller coaster ride through Luke, okay? <laughs> In the temptation by Satan, he, he is filled with the Spirit as he ends, enters into the wilderness and he shows his power over sin and over Satan. And then right before that, he had been baptized. And in his baptism, God speaks from heaven and confirms what we can all see. He says that Jesus is the much-loved Son of God. He comes into this world of Jewish practices and traditions, the world of the Pharisees, and he shows that he is Lord over all of these things because he, in fact, is the fulfillment of them. He heals people on the Sabbath in, in Luke 6, 1 through 11, and says, I do it because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 11, the Pharisees look down on him because they, he doesn't participate in their ritual washings. And he responds by pronouncing this massive series of woes upon them because their hearts are far from him. He doesn't care about these religious practices. He cares about their hearts. Then in, in one of my favorite sections of Luke, begins in, in Luke 8:22, we find Luke answering this question, Who is Jesus? And he does it through all these wonderful stories. The first is Jesus in a boat with his disciples when a storm hits. And he stands up and speaks to the storm and calms it. 
And the disciples say, who is this guy? (laughs) And we say that he is the Lord over creation. The next thing he shows up and he sees a, a man that's possessed by a legion of demons. And he, nothing could stop this guy except for Jesus. He casts out the demons and he shows that he is Lord over demons and all the powers of darkness. There's a woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. No one could do anything about it. She touches Jesus' clothes and she's healed in an instant because Jesus is the Lord over disease. He, he goes to the house of a 12-year-old girl, raises her from the dead because he's the Lord over death. Herod hears about all this, and he says, who is this guy? He says, it's either Elijah raised from the dead, or John the Baptist raised from the dead. And as Herod's trying to figure it out, Jesus is in the middle of nowhere, takes five loaves, two fishes, and feeds 5,000 people to show that he is the Messiah who provides and makes full. After all this, the disciples take up 12 baskets. They see the power of God. He gathers them around and says, who do people say that I am? They give all the answers, and then he says, and who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. If there's any doubt then about who Jesus is, who is Jesus? The disciples get it right, but then we have a word that actually comes from heaven. God himself in the transfiguration answers the question, who is Jesus? He opens up the sky and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He enters Jerusalem and he acts and he speaks with authority. And when his opponents come and they try to stump him with his questions, he he sees through all their traps and then traps them with questions of his own. He speaks of the coming judgment on Jerusalem and on the entire world and he proclaims that he is the Lord and he is the judge of all the earth. In his trial, in his death, he is in complete control through the whole thing. He even chooses when he is going to breathe his last. No one takes his life from him. When he's resurrected, he shows he is the Lord over death. And in his ascension, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father to reign as the king of the universe for all eternity. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Son of God. He's the Lord of all. Now, Luke's point is not Christology alone. It's not just theology for us to fill our heads with. It's a call to repent. It's a call to turn from sin and from our false notions of who Jesus is and to believe in him as Savior and Lord and to submit to him as King before it is too late. It's a call to action. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of all. And what does Luke want us to do in response? Here's what he wants us to do. Renounce all other allegiances and submit to King Jesus. That's what Luke is pushing towards. Renounce all other allegiances and submit to King Jesus. The Pharisees are the foil in this story. The Pharisees are the ones who are blinded and will not bow the knee, will not submit to King Jesus. They are blinded by their preconceived notions of who, what the Savior of the world is going to look like, so they will not repent. They're prideful. They're self-righteous. They trust in their own works and they're unwilling to bow the knee to Christ. They are those who love money. Remember this theme of money in Luke. They've allowed the stuff of earth to buy the allegiance that they owe only to the giver of all good things. Thank you, Rich Mullins. He tells them that they can't serve God in money. 
He reveals the heart of the rich young ruler. You remember that? He walks away sad. Why? Because he's unwilling to sell all of his possessions and let Jesus be king. And the stubbornness of those who reject Jesus leads all the way to the point that they have this mock trial and end up crucifying the innocent Son of God. We're called to not be like the Pharisees, to push back and to reject the rule of Jesus, but rather we're called to be like Peter and the other disciples in chapter 5 who left everything and followed Jesus. We're called to be wise builders who hear and do the words of Jesus at the end of chapter 6. Luke 9. Go there, because Luke doesn't sugarcoat what it means to follow Jesus. He's telling us to submit to King Jesus, and he shows us that that's not going to be as easy as you might think. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Turn to chapter 14 in a similar way. We're called to count the cost of following Jesus, of submitting to him as king. In verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. This is chapter 14, verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation he is not able and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Chapter 12, verse 29, another description of what it means to follow Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 29, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. And then this wonderful promise. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus calls us away from any other allegiance. He calls us to submit to him alone. Not to family, not to friends, not to money, not to possessions. He says, who are his family? It's those who do the will of God. We are called to submit to Jesus, to renounce all other allegiances. And the only reason we will do that is if we see that he's the Savior of the world and he's the Lord of all. And if we see that, then we say, I'll do it. I'll follow you in this way. 
And when we follow Jesus, we get to the end of our days and we say the words of chapter 17, verse 10. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Luke calls us, after presenting who Jesus is, to come and find life in Jesus. And he says, do it now, because the judge is going to return, and then it will be too late. There's a big emphasis on this in Luke. He says, if you're going to submit to Jesus, you best figure it out now. He says, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that, after the body is dead, can cast soul and spirit into, into hell. He says we're to be ready because the Son of Man's coming at an hour that we do not expect. He says we need to settle with our accuser now before it's too late. He says enter by the narrow door before we wander down the wide path that leads to destruction. Jesus wants us to be sure that he is the Savior and Lord of the world, but that he is our Savior and our Lord. The book of Luke calls us to turn from sin and to bow the knee to King Jesus. I think Luke would ask us the question, have you repented of sin and turned in faith to Jesus? Have you seen who he is? That he is the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah and the Redeemer of all. Have you seen that he is the Lord over all things and that he will return one day? to fully reign in that way. And unless we repent and turn from sin now and find life in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we have no hope. I plead with you to turn to Christ. He is who He said He is. And Luke is so clear about who He is. He makes it crystal clear who Jesus is. And then he says, now submit to Him. Turn to Him. We come in faith. We don't come like Pharisees trying to hold on to things like our own good works, or somehow that we could buy our way into heaven, but we come, we turn from sin, we turn and we trust in Christ, that He has paid the penalty for my sin, that He has risen to give me new life, that He has ascended and He will come again to take me to Himself. It's by faith. But I think Luke comes to those of us who have turned to Jesus and asks, Is Jesus Lord? I'm not saying that you can come to Jesus and accept Him as Savior and not as Lord. I think when you come to Jesus, even at the beginning, He is Savior and He is Lord. He takes control of your life. But there are times that we as Christians, we don't walk in these ways of discipleship that we just read about. We allow other things to take control and to lead our lives. Other things become the the ruling force in our lives. And we need to afresh and anew enthrone Jesus and submit to His rule, to follow Him, to let nothing else hold our hearts except for Christ alone. And Luke calls us to that. So having turned to Jesus, are we continually enthroning him as Lord, allowing him to rule our lives? So who is Jesus? The Savior of the world. He's the Lord over all. And Luke, in response, then tells us to renounce all other allegiances and submit to King Jesus. But there's one other response that I think Luke is pushing towards. I think Luke is previewing the book of Acts. Because this is a two-volume book. He's, he's pushing towards something. And in the book of Acts, we see the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So just as Luke proclaims Jesus as Savior and Lord, he then invites us, if we see that, to join in the proclamation of Jesus as King. 
That's the last thing that Luke wants us to do is join in the proclamation of Jesus as king. And, and he begins in chapter 9 and chapter 10 to give a preview of the power that's going to come with the Spirit. You remember Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. He sends out the disciples and he sends out the 70. And they go out in great power with the authority of Jesus on them. He talks in chapter 12, verse 12, about how the, the Spirit is going to give words to say in the moment of, dis, of, of, of trial. And then the book ends with the disciples in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father, for the Holy Spirit. And so we are to go and proclaim this message that Jesus is the Savior of the world and He is the Lord of all and we must turn and repent and and submit to Him before it's too late. We're to go in an attitude of prayer. Isn't that a great theme in Luke? Jesus' dependence upon the Father, He models that for us, drawing away from the crowds and seeking His Father. It shows us that we're to go and proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we are to go to who? All people, just as Jesus did. We go to all nations. We make no distinction amongst any peoples based on wealth or health or status in society. In fact, doesn't it look like Jesus is telling us to go to the poor in particular, to go to the outcasts especially? Not exclusively. It says that uh, not many Rich are saved. Not doesn't say not any rich, just not many. What was that? So Luke again is writing. Let's just sort of tie this all up, okay? Luke is writing to make us certain of who Jesus is, and he calls us to follow him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the promised Messiah for the Jewish people, and he's the Redeemer of all people. Gentile and outcast alike. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord of all. Over all people, over all the earth, over all authorities. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the King of the universe. And he calls all to submit to his rule. And how should we respond? By bowing the knee to King Jesus. Renouncing all other allegiances and submitting to him. By turning from sin and trusting in Christ for salvation. By continually enthroning him allowing him to be the king and the Lord of our lives before it's too late. And how should we respond? By joining this worldwide proclamation of Jesus as the Savior of the world and the Lord of all. Where to go? We go with no prejudices. We go to all people. Like Jesus, we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed, with acts of compassion and love and with words that are authoritative. We never shy away from the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to come to him and to escape, to, to come to the Father and escape judgment except through him. And we go in the power of the Spirit. We go armed with faith and winged by prayer as we will sing. We make, Luke makes us certain of who Jesus is and he calls us to follow him. I think Luke would have us ask at the end of this gospel, do you know who Jesus is? I pray that after 111 sermons, we know a little bit more of who Jesus is. A better picture of who Christ is. But if you want to hang your hat on two things, just say, He's the Savior of the world. He's the Lord of all. That's who Jesus is. And then the question is, will you follow Him? Will you submit to Him? Will you submit to His rule? And will you join Him in the worldwide proclamation of this good news of who Jesus is? What a road trip, huh? It's been a long journey through Luke, but I don't regret any of it. 
It's been good to think about who Jesus is. As I was looking back on this sermon, uh, I looked at the first sermon, and I remember that it was it was from the prompting of Joel that we did this. We were sitting in a meeting one time, and he said it's just good to go back to the Gospels and remember who Jesus is. So I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know the Lord's plan for our church, but I don't think this is the last Gospel that we'll be in. Maybe we'll do Mark next time. It's a little shorter. But we need to keep coming back and seeing who is Jesus. Will we follow him? I pray that those questions would ring in our ears.